Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. In our last contemplation, we tried to touch our need to think deeply about the nature of ethics, the central importance of ethics in our work with the medicines of the world, and the way the medicines of our world gesture toward an ethics of consciousness. This time we'll turn to perhaps the most important training we can begin with in our work with the medicines of the world. In a sense, it's the strongest recommendation I can make as a philosopher. If you want the single most important practice to start with in relation to working with any of the medicines of our world, this is it. This is such an important topic, and it's so wonderful to think about these sorts of powerful teachings together. And in this contemplation, we want to somehow get a feel for the fullness, the richness, and the incredible, empowering nature of compassion training in particular, which means a holistic training of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, and how all that relates with an ethics of consciousness and the work we do with any of the medicines of our world. One thing we should touch on again at the outset, and then let it rest in our hearts as well as we can, is the fragmentation of our context. As John Dewey pointed out, this is one of the greatest fallacies of the mind in the dominant culture, and that is to ignore context. We live in a fragmented and fragmenting context. And in this context, we have to put in some extra effort. See, because we're kind of starting at a deficit. And that's going to require a little more. It's kind of an annoying burden to have to carry. But that's our situation. And so for one thing, we need to integrate our view of the medicines of the world so that we don't think of psychedelics as separate from other kinds of medicines, and so that we relate with all the medicines of our world in a manner that moves from and toward wholeness. And that includes bringing our healing into fuller mutuality so that our healing and the healing of the world go totally together. We've touched on that again and again, but it's always important to honor that, that potential and that calling. And we also want to honor the healing experiences that people have had with various medicines of the world. And we can even ask the question, well, how do we honor those experiences? And related to that, we can ask, how do we honor these medicines? How can we really honor the medicines of our world? Because these medicines may want us to heal, But if we go to them sort of saying, heal me, then this can perpetuate fragmentation. We could suggest that it's like a kind of magical thinking in the unskillful sense, that approach to the medicines that says, you heal me. It leads us to act as if our healing somehow arises separately from the world, and that our illness too, in some sense, arises separately from the world. And it might be very subtle. We think, I am sick. And then this I has to go to the medicines of the world and ask them to heal 
me. But the medicines of our world may need us to do our part. To honor them, we might have to enter into a more holistic and consistent training of the heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, and a more visionary attunement with the cosmos overall. And part of the central issue here goes directly to the heart of our contemplation today, which involves looking at our suffering as an opportunity for liberation. This means we relate to the suffering, our suffering, not as a problem needing a cure, but as an opportunity for liberation. We could think of this as part of how we differentiate healing from curing. We could say that in the case of a cure, our symptoms are removed. We feel great. We feel that our suffering has passed. And that's all really wonderful. In the case of healing, we feel something has transformed in us, that we got rid of ignorance rather than just a set of physical or psychological symptoms. And in that kind of situation, the cure in a certain way becomes beside the point. And if a cure doesn't happen for whatever reason, then whatever it was that afflicted us may kill us. And yet, we will die having experienced healing. We can be healed, but not cured, and we can be cured, but not healed. And it's not that they're mutually exclusive, it's just that th those are two possibilities. We can also have both. Now, the ego, though, in general, given a choice, will take the latter if it can, the, the, the being cured, but not healed. The ego will take the cure, even if it has to forsake the healing. But the soul longs for the healing first. And then in the best case, the healing will go along with a cure. But if we take the orientation of healing and then do our best to let that healing help the whole world as much as possible, we may find that we're cured as well. But in any case, that healing will make all the difference to us and to the world. So we'll feel that it was very much worth it to, to have that orientation. The wisdom traditions encourage this kind of approach because they teach us that the only true illness is ignorance. Everything else is relative from that standpoint. When we confront our ignorance, we become more dependable. And that brings us into mutuality with the medicines of our world. That's, this is just one way of putting it, but we could put it that way because we want to depend on the medicines. We want them to be reliable for us. But then the medicines have to depend on us. We have to become dependable because the whole community of life depends on us. I was just talking about this with another philosopher, and we were talking about how the ethics of consciousness makes us aware of how much the whole community of life depends on the human psyche. And I remembered Jung's famous line that the world hangs by a thin thread, and that thread is the human psyche. That's what he said. And he said, there's no such thing in nature as an H-bomb. He said, we are the great danger. The psyche is the great danger. Those are his words. And he felt that in our time, 
the power of the psyche has become quite obvious if if we're willing to look. And he felt that we should also recognize with equal clarity how important it is to know something about our psyche, to really know the psyche, to become familiar with it. But Jung felt that we basically know nothing about the psyche. The kind of knowing that he's talking about takes place in a holistic ecology, but again, our general ecology is fragmented and fragmenting. So that's a challenge for us, and there's a danger for us that we can think Jung is wrong about that. You know, we may recognize the power of the psyche and think he's right about that. Yes, the human psyche is very important, but then when he says we basically know nothing about it, we might say, no, we do, especially if we have taken a psychedelic medicine, because that's a mind-manifesting medicine, after all. And so we may work with the mind-manifesting medicines of our world, and we may get some taste of the vastness of the mind, some taste of the silence of the mind, some taste of the radiance of the mind, some taste of the interwovenness of all things, some taste a visionary experience, anything like that. And we can basically think that we're enlightened and that Jung is wrong and we, I know the psyche, we might say to Jung. I was thinking of a, a silly example along these lines that I thought it, it, it felt right in my own experience, but then I was thinking of other examples. And I recalled that David Dunning had written a piece for the New York Times that touched on the very thing that I was trying to get at in the examples I was thinking about. Dunning co-authored a paper with Justin Kruger in which they noticed an aspect of a very ancient philosophical teaching. They looked at it in a more narrow way, and their finding has become known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And maybe we can go into all of that in another contemplation, but Dunning's piece for the Times doesn't require us to go into it now. It, It is in the background That's fine if you know about that. If you don't, no big deal. Now, this is a slightly longer quote, and I'll let you know when it's over. And here's what Dunning wrote. Quote, If I were given carte blanche to write about any topic I could, it would be about how much our ignorance in general shapes our lives in ways we do not know about. Put simply, People tend to do what they know and fail to do that which they have no conception of. In that way, ignorance profoundly channels the course we take in life. And unknown unknowns constitute a grand swath of everybody's field of ignorance. People often come up with answers to problems that are okay but are not the best solutions. The reason they don't come up with those solutions is that they are simply not aware of them. Stefan Fatsis, in his book Word Freak, talks about this when comparing everyday Scrabble players to professional ones. As Fatsis writes in that book, in a way, the living room player is lucky. They have no idea how miserably they fail with almost every turn, how many possible words or optimal plays slip 
by unnoticed. The idea of Scrabble greatness doesn't exist for them. Unknown, unknown solutions haunt the mediocre without their knowledge. The average detective does not realize the clues he or she neglects. The mediocre doctor is not aware of the diagnostic possibilities or treatments never considered. The run-of-the-mill lawyer fails to recognize the winning legal argument that is out there. People fail to reach their potential as professionals, lovers, parents, and people simply because they are not aware of the possible. This is one of the reasons I often urge my student advisees to find out who the smart professors are and to get themselves in front of those professors so they can see what smart looks like. Now that's the quote. And you know, I, in reading it to you, I, I, I was really struck by the first couple of lines actually because he's, He's so Socratic here that it's almost amazing. I wonder if in his work he ever acknowledges Socrates. I only read the one article, and it's been so long I don't remember. Although Dunning is a a very uh, highly regarded social scientist. He's like in the top 2% in terms of citations. But there he says it. If I were given, if he, carte blanche to write about anything, he says. Someone says, look, you can write about anything, and we'll, we'll pay for it, you know. And this is just a little piece he's writing. So in a way, he's doing it right there. He's saying, here I am. I'm allowed to write whatever I want. And maybe he's even though imagining, you could write me a big check. And this is the message I would want to convey. And that is that ignorance in general shapes our lives in ways we do not know about. It's incredibly Socratic. He's in line with all the wisdom traditions. We didn't need a social scientist to tell us this. We had to pay attention to our own traditions and take them seriously. And he's saying... From a scientist's perspective, he's got empirical evidence that this is true. Of course, the old sages had empirical evidence, too. They looked. They looked around and they saw how people behaved. And so, ignorance is what profoundly channels the course we take in life. Isn't that amazing? That our path, generally speaking, is a path of ignorance. And the wisdom traditions are just begging us, look, we can put you on a path of wisdom, love, and beauty. And if you don't take this path... You might be stuck. And the problem is you don't realize it. That's what Dunning is saying. And Dunning shares these concerns with many other scientists. But again, the scientists don't necessarily realize that the ancient sages dealt with all of this and understood it much more holistically, in fact. We still understand it in pieces, in fragments. Socrates and other philosophers knew intimately that ignorance is not merely a lack of information. Rather, ignorance in the spiritual or philosophical sense becomes most dangerous when it presents itself as knowledge. And that's something that Dunning is um, touching on here, too, because we might think we know how to play Scrabble, but that's only because we never played anybody who actually knows how to play. And so we've voiced this basic concern several times in our contemplation of the medicines of the world. We've suggested that because of our context, We might be like the people Dunning describes, who just have no idea what they're missing. A a certain person might think they play a, a really fine game of Scrabble, or that they're a pretty competent attorney. But that's just because they never met somebody significantly enough better that they could realize just how bad they are.
Now, the other lines that stand out that maybe capture this for us today, I mean, the whole thing, especially the ones that I just read again, but if we, if we can try to keep these in mind too, people tend to do what they know and fail to do that which they have no conception of. I don't know why I'm quoting a social scientist. Just It's just that he came to mind. I was thinking of a silly example, which was ping pong. And it just, it, it, it just felt right because I just remember as a little kid, you know, just I thought ping pong was this fun game. And then I, you know, met a kid who I didn't have a ping pong table. You know, I learned to, I would just play here and there with people, go over to somebody's house. They've got a ping pong table. And it's like, oh, this is a fun game. And then one day I ran into somebody who really knew how to play. And it was ridiculous. I mean, it just wasn't even any fun. And it was that I realized this. there's this whole world where people must take this incredibly seriously. And I thought it was just this fun thing when you can't go onto a tennis court. And that was my silly example. And I'm using his because I just, it popped to mind. But these lines, it's nice to see them in a piece for the New York Times. And so he's saying that if we don't have any concept of the thing, we can't obviously do it, can we? And he said, people fail to reach their potential as professionals, lovers, parents, and he uses the word people again, as human beings, as we fail to reach our potential, period, both in certain domains, might be our career, might be our relationships, friendships, and then also just our human, deep human potential. And that's just because we don't even have a clue what it is. We don't really know what our potential is, and we tend to sell ourselves short. Many of us do. Even the ones who are very egocentric, you know, from the standpoint of the wisdom traditions, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have really sold themselves short because they have all these resources and they could be focusing on really unleashing human potential. But getting on a rocket and trying to leave the planet, that's not it. And we could say that what Dunning is talking about is a central issue in almost every Dangerous Wisdom podcast, in some sense or another, because this is so central to the wisdom traditions, we have to keep in mind that if we don't know what's possible, we may think that what we're doing is about as good as it gets, or pretty close. Well, you know, We might say, well, I'm not a totally enlightened, you know, but then we aren't really acting like we aren't then. We'll admit that we're not, but then the action doesn't follow it up. Well, if you're not, are you going to do the work? And sometimes the ego says, well, no, and it finds ways to dance around it. And here, uh, Dunning says that he wants students to find out about the possibilities that they might not even imagine, so he sends them to find examples of excellence. And similarly, we have consistently suggested that we all need to seek out examples of excellence in the wisdom traditions. And that's in part just because it's hard for us in this cultural context to imagine really in a good way, because we can, we can have magical thinking in an unskillful sense and dream up possibilities for ourselves, but those aren't really real. And so we have to find out how we could really imagine what's possible for us, and one of the reliable ways to do that is to turn toward traditions that have been experimenting. They've been running the experiments for centuries, pushing the envelope of what human beings are capable of. And if we don't get clearer about what we are capable of, then capitalism is going to remain, in our mind, the best way to organize our activity. The political system we have will remain, in our mind, the best way to codify that activity. 
and will continue to degrade the conditions of life. And we often get this kind of treacle idea that capitalism is the best system we can have. And that's really extraordinary. It's just like saying we don't understand what human beings are for or how they can function properly. And the same thing with our political system. We can't have democracy. We couldn't have democracy in general, and we certainly can't have it at work. So we're not allowed to have democracy at work, but we're not even really allowed to have a democracy. And then we've got all kinds of ridiculous notions like, you know, well, it's a republic. No, it's just not. It's just set up to be pretty oligarchic. So the the subversion of democracy counts as democracy these days. And we're really in a a tight situation. And again, the world really seems to be hanging by a thread if we don't get it together a little. And the challenge, this is coming from partly the experience of encountering people all the time who behave as if they don't need training from the wisdom traditions. And our culture, of course, keeps philosophy away from us precisely to make sure we don't start imagining new and better possibilities. And then when people encounter it, they can be resistant to it. And they can be pretty disinclined to put in the efforts that love wisdom demands. Sophia's not so easy, you know. She's not going to let us off without putting ourselves on the spot. And for us, again, in this context, that can take some extra energy. And we, we could name here two of the major forms of self-deception that we have to face in the dominant culture. One is thinking love wisdom is too much for us, and the other one is thinking we're too much for it. When we think love wisdom is too much for us, we say, it's abstract, it goes over my head, it's too hard, I don't want to do all this stuff, why is this necessary? It's some of the things that we used to sometimes complain about in school, because of course the education we get in school is not very connected to our life. And so we we are trained to have that kind of reaction sometimes and start to glaze over, and we're really able to draw on that. And we'll reject parts of wisdom traditions or we'll reject some of the central teachings and basically avoid critical reflection and study to a certain degree. We might read some things, but we won't read anything too hard. And we'll be disinclined to read something that would require us to go to a teacher and, and get help to think it through. And especially then if it also has practices that we would have to do every single day for maybe maybe an hour a day, maybe more. And so we don't always avoid it completely, but we will, the ego will manipulate the situation and it will steer clear of anything that seems too threatening and the ego will do this while dismissing it for us. And again, sometimes it's in this way of, well, that's you can't handle that. You, that's too much for you. And sometimes that response goes, or reaction, we should say, goes hand in hand with the other side of this duality, and that's when we act like we're too much for love wisdom. And sometimes that happens because we might have had a seemingly big experience, maybe with the, some medicine we were working with, or we went to India, or we went to the Mayan pyramids and we had like a big spiritual experience, or maybe we think we have a very old soul, you know, and we've been around a lot of times, so we feel that we have a lot of wisdom, and we, whatever the situation is, we essentially say, well, I don't need these practices. I don't need any more teachings. Or I already know everything within myself. All the answers are within me. I trust this deeper way of knowing and everybody has access to it. And that may sound good to our ego. 
and it may sound good to some of the people around us, but from the standpoint of the wisdom traditions, it could be. And I'm not, I want to take anything away from anyone because in some cases, maybe the people are genuinely wise and then they won't be offended by what I'm saying. Obviously, that would be part of it. But at least in some of these cases, it could be that we haven't really made much of a start. And what we think we've discovered might remain rather shallow, wobbly, and unreliable. Might be pretty fragmented and partial. And we might not really be able to move forward in a skillful way that will truly benefit the whole community of life. And that's why the, this passage from Dunning uh, is an important one to keep in mind. It's not to belittle anyone. It's to just ask for some humility as we consider these super important matters. <laughs> so important that I'll use the phrase super important. It's like a superfood snack for the soul. Now, in light of uh, these sorts of challenges... I want to emphasize, too, that our effort here is not humility for the sake of humility, but an effort to expand the dialogue and to offer a respectful view of the evident power that the medicines of our world have. That's why they're medicines, after all. They have tremendous power. So how can we revere that so much and revere the sacredness of the world so much, and the great mystery itself, that we could say, maybe we have a lot more to learn than we at first imagined. The medicines have power, but maybe the power and potential they have goes far beyond what we think, and maybe in some ways we also have a kind of bad magical thinking in relationship to some of the medicines of the world, and, and in relationship to the world in general. And maybe there are certain aspects of the magic of the world and the magic of the medicines of the world that we've misunderstood. And our contemplation here has to do with tapping into the fullest power and potential in ourselves, in the medicines of the world, in the world, in the mystery, for the sake of our own highest ideals and for the benefit of all beings, including beings nearest and dearest to us already. And in order to do that, in this contemplation in particular, we want to look more directly at a core ethical concept and a set of practices in a holistic ecology of wisdom, love, and beauty. As I said, this is one of the strongest recommendations I could make to anyone wanting to work with the medicines of our world. If someone came to me and said, I am really suffering, maybe they, they say, I've suffered with PTSD for years and I have finally signed up to work with a psychedelic medicine, what do you as a philosopher think is the most important thing for me to do in order to prepare to work with this medicine? And with the greatest care and respect, the first thing I would say is, well, can we pause? Can you, I know that you have suffered for a long time and you have finally got this chance to work with this medicine, could you postpone it? Postpone working with the medicine until we can get you grounded in the basics of a holistic philosophy of life. So holism still remains the principal recommendation. And we don't even have to pick a particular tradition to work with right away. We can begin to at least root ourselves in the common ground of all traditions first. 
That's part of the importance of cultivating a common ground, to know that it's there, that we can draw from it like a spiritual commons that we all benefit from and take care of. It's a place of kinship. And this correlates directly with places in our external ecologies that we call a commons, places in the landscape that we all benefit from and that we all have to take care of. The spiritual commons and the ecological commons go totally together, totally. So if we want to help one, helping the other one is a good and reliable way to do that. Want to take care of the spiritual commons, also take care of the ecological commons. To take care of the ecological commons in the best way, we have to do so on the basis of the spiritual commons. Through our spiritual commons, we can learn some of the core elements that any holistic philosophy really should have in it, and then we can eventually find a teacher and a lineage of practice. So that's the first thing I would say. If someone came to me with a lot of urgency and said, I really want to work with these medicines. Now, if they agreed to that and said, well, okay, that sounds great. This holistic thing, spiritual commons, fine, I'll do it. Where do we begin? Well, then the place that we would begin be the basic teachings and the first practice would be compassion training. That's the place I begin with everyone. When I was in the university system, I wouldn't even teach a course in logic without grounding it in compassion training, which should sound, I hope that sounds weird to you. Why would you have compassion training as the foundation of a logic course? Same reason I'd have it as the foundation for any course. I don't care if I taught physics, that would be the basis of it. So same thing happened if I taught ethics, that makes sense. If I taught about philosophy of mind, philosophy of psychology, always compassion. Even when I taught writing, I taught writing on the basis of love and compassion. And it's true today when I work with clients or when I teach online or if I do a retreat. It's always going to have that as the foundation. Same when I work with horses. Compassion training serves as the common ground. And horses love it, so therefore we know it's good. That's the real gold standard in my own epistemology for many things. I check and see what the horses think. Now we can say there are a few key aspects of compassion that matter for our work with the medicines of our world. The whole thing does, but I'm going to try to just select some some elements that allow us to sketch it in relation to working with the medicines of our world in particular. And one of the central issues has to do with the nature of knowing or experiencing anything at all. When we work with the medicines of our world, we can do so in a manner oriented toward insight. We want reality. We cannot depend on delusion to navigate our lives. Even though Dunning was telling us, well, you know, that ignorance channels most of your life, and that's why our life looks the way it does. That's why the conditions of life are at risk. Self-deception and delusion of any kind will eventually cause suffering for us and for others. So we want reality. We want to experience reality. We want to know reality. But what we know and what we experience depends on what we have practiced and what we have become. So there are certain things that we can't know without becoming the kind of knower 
capable of knowing them. Buddha himself, who is really one of my absolute favorite philosophers, I, I love him, he's such a good... Where would I be without him, along with Plato and Socrates and good old Zhuangzi? These are my dearest friends. And I, in one of the great moments of love wisdom and the whole history of love wisdom of the world, Buddha touched on this in a lovely way. And I share this all the time, so forgive me if you've heard it before. But one day this Brahmin, which is like a member of the priestly class, this Brahmin comes up to Buddha and says, Buddha, you are the medicine for so many people, aren't you? Essentially, I'm translating a little bit. And he says, you went into the forest to become that medicine. But isn't it hard to go into the forest like that? And don't people lose their spiritual focus in the forest? Now, we have to keep in mind the context of this question, because Buddha wasn't a Navy SEAL or a wilderness survival expert. He was basically raised in the equivalent of a royal family, with not much training about staying in wild forest areas with tigers, snakes, and all kinds of other challenging beings and situations. And this Brahmin who's asking him about it would have been no better off. A Brahmin, again, is like a priest. Not, he's not a wilderness guide. So this is a really good question. He's saying that, how did you... And this is a long time ago when some of the wild areas would have been a lot wilder than anything most of us in the dominant culture are ever going to see. Because, for instance, we're not going to run into tigers. And many of us don't even run into that many snakes. We can go our whole life without really crossing the path of a, a very dangerous animal, other than maybe a dog that scares us a little bit. And so Buddha says to this Brahmin, he says, you're right about that. And he, this is one of my favorite lines. He, he says to this uh, Brahmin, any driveler can go into the forest. Any driveler. I really love that. Which he's trying to say any fool, any idiot can go into the forest. And that's still true today. Anybody at all can go wandering into the forest. Anyone at all can take ayahuasca or peyote or MDMA. And nice things may happen. It's quite possible. The forest is still a source of medicine. And today we've begun to recognize how much this forest is a source of medicine. And people realize that if they go into the forest, it can make them feel really nice. It can feel profoundly therapeutic for some people, especially if they've been really cut off from nature. It's like a certain kind of scurvy, you know, it's we're missing nature. As one writer called it, it's like a nature deficit disorder. And so we want to honor that. We want to honor the healing that people do experience. It can be transformative. And as always, we want to ask what we might be missing simply because we have no idea anymore that it's a possibility for human beings. In a way, this so-called forest bathing that we see, it's really nice in some ways, but it's also a good example of how the dominant culture waters down everything that could reconnect us with reality. And in our context today, the fragmented context created by the dominant culture, forest bathing usually involves the tamest kinds of experience of nature. No tigers, no snakes, nothing more threatening than mosquitoes and poison oak, and nothing very demanding of our mind. There's no requirement for what kind of mind we go in there with. 
And so it's not that we require dangerous wildness for the forest to offer us healing. It doesn't have to be a life-threatening situation. That's not the problem. It's that when we follow the fragmentation of conquest consciousness, then we don't need to do anything more than forest bathing. We'll satisfy ourselves. It doesn't require a holistic ecology of practice. It's not threatening to us in the sense that we might have to submit to practices, rituals, ceremonies, spiritual vows, and a holistic training of the mind, heart, body, world, and cosmos. And it's not threatening to any of the ignorance of the culture either. Forest bathing doesn't demand entry into a path of mystery, a path of ethics, a vision of our vast potential, and a sense of what our mind is, how it works, and how we can work better with it. Instead, forest bathing, as we tend to encounter it, or or as spiritual materialism will push it toward in any way that it can, because we're not saying that every single person who goes into the forest like this is somehow bad or is doing the wrong thing, or that we have to make it some impossible task. It's just that we do it in a very disconnected way, because it's not connected to all these other elements of our life that the forest itself depends on. And so this is just a a gentle generalization and a kind of warning to ourselves that if we look at a lot of examples of forest bathing, they allow us to keep everything in our life the same, and then we just go to our local park a few times a week, and we get to feel better. And it's nice to feel better. We shouldn't torture ourselves. We should have experiences like this that feel good to us. But the culture will stay the same, and that means that wild forests will continue to be killed the levels of pollution will continue to rise. And we'll feel less stressed out by it all, at least on the surface. The soul is still going to be aware of some of the things going on. And all of this is really what Buddha was trying to say when when he spoke with this Brahman, because what he said is, I didn't just wander into the forest like any old driveler. He said, no, I went into the forest with a mind of love, a mind of compassion, a mind of peace, a mind of joy. I went into the forest with a well-put-together mind, a stable mind, a clear mind. So he's saying, any old person can wander into the forest and nothing's going to happen. You're right, they might get distracted if it's a, a very wild place. They might be fascinated, they might feel nice, all kinds of things could happen, but Buddha was telling the Brahman that if we want to see the reality of the forest and ourselves, if we want to see reality, if we want to experience the mutual illumination of ourselves and the forest, if we want to experience the mutual nourishment of ourselves in the forest, if we want to experience the mutual liberation of ourselves and the forest, then we need holistic training before we go into the forest. If we want to receive the medicine of the forest and also become the medicine in return in the best way possible, then we need training, and that includes love and compassion. And all of this then is central to our contemplation together here. How do we train our mind 
so that the psychic forest, the psychic wilderness that the medicines of our world can show us, can become a place of mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, and mutual liberation. How can we become the medicine for the world? And how do we empower ourselves and the medicine for mutual healing to take place? To take up this kind of training means we have to relate with compassion in a holistic way. Relate with it as an aspect of a holistic ecology. It is not a tool in our toolbox. It's not a technique. It's not a hack. And we want to try to transcend that whole manner of thought. When we take a more holistic approach, we see compassion as related to the ethics of consciousness. The questions of an ethics of consciousness include, how do I use my consciousness? How do I use my life? What am I here for? What is this consciousness capable of doing, both the good and the bad, so that I can understand? And when we're asking about how do we properly use ourselves in our world, we can begin to see that fragmentation is itself bad use of ourselves, bad use of the mind and body, bad use of the world, bad use of awareness. Because at the deepest level, we're just asking how we use awareness, how the primordial mind manifests itself. And as we said, it manifests as an interwovenness, including the interwovenness of wisdom, love, and beauty. Compassion as a practice helps us to see the interwovenness of all things. Compassion practice holds a central place in the cultivation of ethics, and that's part of how it goes beyond empathy. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but just keep in mind, compassion is not empathy. In the dominant culture, because we've so marginalized love wisdom or philosophy and the teachings of all the wisdom traditions, so that a lot of the wisdom available gets filtered and co-opted in countless ways, then we don't realize that we don't really understand what compassion is. And we often mistake it for sympathy, empathy, merely being kind in a more narrow sense. And compassion includes and transcends all of those. Compassion, as we mean it, goes together with ethics, including the ethics of consciousness. Just as Thich Nhat Hanh has worked on the ethical common ground of the mindfulness trainings, the Dalai Lama has focused on this same ethical aspect of the commons, the spiritual commons, in the form of compassion. And he's done a lot of work on this. And the idea, the core idea, is quite similar as with Thich Nhat Hanh. In order for a future to be possible, we do not all have to follow the same religion or philosophy. We each have our own utterly unique path. But we need to find a common ground of wisdom, love, and beauty. That commons, the spiritual commons, that all is interwoven with the ecological commons. And the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh both focus on the love, the compassion part of the spiritual commons, but they integrate it with wisdom and beauty. So they move from and toward wholeness. Other teachers do this too, but we're just mentioning these two giants 
in our global wisdom field. The Dalai Lama in his work has encouraged dominant culture scientists in particular to verify the power of compassion by the standards of dominant culture science so that there too we could begin to see it as a common grounds. See that spiritual commons for what it is and see how powerful it is. Because wisdom is what works without negative side effects. And all of this then helps us to see how well compassion training functions. Because we've got this good empirical data, even within the constraints of dominant culture science. But the data goes beyond just dominant culture science. The Dalai Lama has pointed out that all venerable traditions, all venerable religious, spiritual, and philosophical traditions have a special place for love and compassion. No serious tradition teaches us to refrain from compassion, to be cruel, merciless, to hate. That's not a teaching in any venerable tradition. So love and compassion always have a kind of pride of place, really, in most traditions. The Buddhist traditions are fairly unique in the way they have developed and elaborated concrete practices for working with compassion as the skill that it is. It's not a mere emotion in the conventional sense. It's a complex skill that requires training. Of course, our emotional lives are more nuanced and complex than the dominant culture has so far educated most of us to understand. But even if we acknowledge that, we can see compassion in some ways as a kind of special case. And this is part of why we can benefit so much from dialogue with the Buddhist traditions. Because the fact is we had to learn about compassion by getting Buddhist monks into our laboratories and studying them. We didn't really understand what our own hearts, minds, bodies, and world are capable of. And so, there too, we're fully in line with where we began. We can remember Dunning's words right here. He said, People tend to do what they know and fail to do that which they have no conception of. People fail to reach their potential as professionals, lovers, parents, and human beings simply because they are not aware of the possible. We in the dominant culture had no conception of compassion, really, and therefore we had to learn what was possible from people who understand it far better than we did. And it turns out to be revolutionary for our culture, for the dominant culture. It threatens the whole thing. And that may surprise you. Wait a second, what did I walk into here? Are you serious? Yes, as a philosopher, I'm saying that compassion threatens the structures of power that we have. For instance, in the dominant culture, our entire economic system is really based on, we justify it, and we perpetuate it on the basis of a certain view of human beings. And that's what politics does too. That's what the politics of vision is about, is that a political regime and an economic regime is based on a certain vision of what a human being is. 
and in the view that we have, we are not homo sapiens, instead we are homo economicus. And it's a terrible vision of ourselves. And it's the reason we have to have the society we have. That's where it's part of it. It's part of the justification for many of the things that we do. The story the culture forces us to tell ourselves goes something like this. We are all homo economicus, which means we act selfishly. We're atomized individuals. We need the capitalist marketplace and the anti-democratic institutions we have, or else we would have mob rule. And people would just be lazy and take advantage of each other and take advantage of the system. And we may reject parts of it, but the fact is that people continue to participate in the capitalist framework, which seems to depend on this view of us. It's the whole notion, this ridiculous, talk about bad magical thinking, an invisible hand. How is that not laughed out of court? In the dominant culture, at least, it doesn't fit the rest of the supposed epistemology we have. And this view is what we get. Everybody is self-interested, and magic of Disney, it all works out for everyone. Everyone, it, it, the, the common good is still upheld. It's the most ridiculous notion. The spiritual commons doesn't operate that way. But we're told we cannot have a more cooperative, collaborative, and democratic culture because we're just too atomized and self-centered. We'll have chaos and violence and also laziness. I guess maybe the lazy people will just be lazy and then everyone else will be violent. And so the breathtaking revolution here is that the philosophy and science of compassion provides a clear proof that this is false. Period. End of story. It's false. Scientifically, we have overthrown our best justification for many aspects of our lives. We do not have to remain trapped as self-centered atomic individuals, and we can establish a more creative, vitalizing, cooperative, collaborative culture, a culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. Compassion science demonstrates this as a possibility because a compassionate orientation makes us more skillful in our whole style of relating, which means it makes us more rational as well. So rational here now is brought into union with being kind, caring, and conscientious, rather than in the homo economicus view, which is rational as cold and calculating. And it uses the world. It extracts from the world. And this orientation, rationality, is integrated with kindness, caring, and conscientiousness. Of course, conscientiousness can be with a rational person too in many cases, the conscientious accountant, but this we're just talking about a holism, a unity of wisdom and love and beauty. And all of this has to do with going beyond what we know and beginning to discover the mysteries we as of yet have no real conception of, because you can't have the idea without having already repeated the experience many times. So we need repeated experience. Now, in a related vein, this vein of, okay, well, you can't do what you don't have a conception of, what you don't know is possible, you know, that we don't fulfill our potential as human beings simply because we don't know what the potential is. And related to that, 
first this view of homo economicus, and we had to find out, again, we didn't know what compassion was. You look at the science of this, and they're putting these monks in brain scanners and saying, what's going on in there? And it's just puzzlement. And then we discover this powerful thing, and we discover how healing it is, and we discover that it overthrows our view of what a human being is, what's possible for us in our culture. In order to make these things possible, we'd, we'd have to practice. It would require changing the ecology of practice. And again, just in another example of this, I remember going to a conference where Richie Davidson gave a talk, and he's one of the main researchers. He's a highly regarded expert in emotions, and he has done incredible work in studying the neuroscience of contemplative practices like compassion training and other forms of contemplative practice. And he was, at this conference, he was talking about one of his famous papers. And I had read this paper and he uh, shared something that you wouldn't know if you just read the paper, that when they were taking the EEG measurements on the advanced Buddhist monks, while they were, comp they were practicing compassion meditation. And Davidson said that at first they thought the EEG machine was broken because no one had ever seen an EEG machine do what it was doing while these monks were practicing compassion meditation hooked up to it. So, in talking about compassion, we are in the realm of the unknown as far as most people's experience. And we have to keep in mind that these were highly trained monks. Any of us can learn these things, but we have to take up a holistic training. And we have to understand that we're talking about something that's outside to some degree, maybe varying degrees. I'm not saying that you can't understand anything that we're talking about. No, it all makes sense, you know, conceptually to a certain degree. But there's something here that's outside of what most of us know. So we're brushing up against the mystery here. One of the things that we can become aware of is that without the skill of compassion and the related attitudes that go with it, we can suffer from empathic distress or other symptoms of emotional contagion. And that matters a great deal for people facilitating work with the medicines of our world, as well as for those working directly with those medicines. Because people working with any of the medicines of our world can become exceptionally vulnerable to emotional contagion and empathy distress or empathic distress. And they can end up feeling drained risking burnout and feeling that they need to protect themselves. And maybe they do need to protect themselves in some ways, but even more importantly, or, or as important, let us say, we, we want to not harm ourselves, we all need training in how to dissolve these sorts of problems to begin with. And that's part of the ethics of consciousness. How do we work with suffering? And how do we work in general with our own states of consciousness and the states of consciousness of others, whatever those states may be. The Dangerous Wisdom website has free teachings on the basics of compassion, including how compassion differs from empathy and how we can begin to practice. And so You can find free meditations to get started and written instructions on the Dangerous Wisdom blog. 
And I usually recommend that people start off with three minutes a day, and then you could increase it. And we're going to try to talk about some of it here today. So, so you'll have, I'll, I'll try to say at least some things that you won't hear there. We'll try to relate it directly to working with the medicines. And we're going to talk about it now because it's crucial training. And we just can't emphasize this enough. As I mentioned, it's foundational for all the work I do. And one can spend many years mastering it. But we can also make it a foundation from the start. So this, even though that we're brushing against the unknown, it doesn't mean that we can't start to learn something right away. And it doesn't mean that the medicine can't help us right away, because it can. This medicine can start to function in our lives right away. It is both a beginning and advanced practice at the same time. It continues to unfold with us, and it continues to unfold us. As we work with it, we can begin to see that it might not be ethical to work with any of the medicines of our world except on this kind of foundation. We could begin to see it as part of the foundation for all teaching and learning, all of human culture, because we could become homo sapiens again instead of homo economicus, but we, we would need to know that we could reliably be rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, rooted in this kind of orientation with each other, so that we wouldn't have to fear the horrible things that Homo economicus scares us into thinking will happen. And the practices we're talking about here, again, have been verified by 2,600 years of experimentation, elaboration, examination, analysis. We're talking about real, empirical, creative, imaginative, and analytical work, mainly in the various Buddhist traditions, and now it has gotten verified by the lights of dominant culture science as well. So we're not dealing with this in dogmatic or narrow religious terms. We're dealing with it as a philosophical or spiritual common ground that happens to have scientific validation. And we can be from any religion or any philosophical tradition, and we know that our tradition has got teachings about love and compassion. And we're asking, in a sense, but well, what do those teachings mean? What does it actually mean to cultivate love and compassion? What insights should come with it? What's the experience like? What do we do to make love and compassion real in us and in our world, to nurture it, to bring it to life in the world, not as an abstraction? And so that means we've got to have a real set of teachings and practices. And again, that's the benefit of the Buddhist traditions, that they've elaborated such teachings and practices in remarkable detail with skill and with real holism. And then we can integrate the practice with whatever our native tradition is, whatever is part of our lineage or whatever we feel we're drawn to. Wherever we're coming from in our religious or philosophical orientation, we know we can integrate this safely with, with dignity for our own tradition and for the philosophical traditions that we're studying them from. Now, And given that compassion is a skill, we, we're going to need practices in order not only to get good at that skill, but even to understand it, because life is not a conceptual affair. But again, we can describe some aspects of compassion, and we can start to get a sense for it. And it may prove helpful 
to begin by giving a basic definition of compassion and then contrasting compassion with empathy, because that's a common confusion that we can have. As far as a basic definition, compassion means a skillful response to life. The skillful means we employ in all our relational activity on the basis of wisdom and beauty. So compassion is skillful means on the basis of wisdom and beauty. And in particular, compassion has to do with our skillful response to suffering. Compassion arises as an energetic and engaged attitude in which we actively work for the cessation of suffering everywhere in the whole cosmos. So it's kind of a crazy idea. It should strike us as a little cosmically wild. In the Buddhist tradition, compassion gives rise to Buddhahood itself. That's how important it is. A Buddha cannot be a Buddha without unshakable compassion. And that means compassion itself arises as a great medicine. When we have fully awakened our compassion, we ourselves have become the greatest medicine for all beings. Moreover, compassion nourishes our entire process of becoming enlightened. Without compassion, the landscape of the soul becomes parched, and it needs the waters of compassion to bring the seeds of wisdom and beauty to life. Compassion brings vitality, and also a measure of ease in our spiritual practice. It makes walking that path easier and it makes the path smoother. It brings it alive. Now again, all this is preliminary. We're just getting a basic orientation. To go a little further, it can be very helpful to contrast empathy with compassion. And so empathy is part of of our basic capacity for resonance. We are interwoven, and empathy goes together with experiencing that interwovenness. So if you yawn, I might yawn. If you smile, I smile. If I see you getting pricked with a needle, the same area in my brain would light up as if I were getting pricked by the needle. And so empathy seems to feel pretty nice if you smile or laugh or get tickled, and then it seems like it's not so great when you suffer, because if you suffer, then I will suffer too. So instead of having an orientation to liberation from suffering, empathy has the orientation of getting pulled into suffering. And we find some important nuances here, because compassion training has to do with how we best work with positive states too. Even in positive states, empathy is too limiting because empathy lacks wisdom and beauty. But we don't usually notice the limits of empathy very well until we sense some suffering. And so that's part of why we start by talking more about the obvious forms of suffering with empathy. If we only know empathy then when others around us suffer, we can start to experience what's called empathic distress or empathy distress. Because 
if if you're looking at someone and the suffering is going on and on and on, or we keep encountering suffering, then suffering and suffering again, and we empathize with it every time, then we're just getting pulled into suffering consistently. And think of how intense this can become when we're just walking down the street and we see people who have to live in the streets, or we see police violence against a marginalized group, or we sense ecological degradation, or injustice in any way. Or maybe we see an animal dead on the road because they got hit by a car. That's just another senseless waste of life. Or we see a news story about birds dying with plastic in their bellies. We feel all that. And it becomes toxic to us if we're stuck in empathy. Empathic distress used to be called compassion distress or compassion fatigue, but now we know better. We had to learn. We were ignorant. We, di- we didn't know. But now we do know the difference between compassion and empathy. And it's precisely incorrect to say there's compassion fatigue. There's no such thing. There's empathy distress, and compassion is the medicine that heals empathy distress. There is no compassion fatigue. Compassion is like a larger space. Empathy is like a little space where we just feel with. We don't want to give up on empathy. We need that basic resonance, that feeling of our interwovenness, but we need to mature beyond it and be in the larger space that includes it. Compassion includes our empathetic capacity, but it goes beyond it so that we don't suffer the limitations. And if we don't do that, if we don't enter that larger space, a lot of things can go wrong for us, not least of which that we can begin to feel a victim to our empathy, at least when the empathy involves suffering. In some situations, we might not even realize that this has happened because we can experience emotional contagion and simply assume the negative feelings are our own. And this happens in intimate relationships probably pretty frequently. Our dearest friend or our life partner can come into the room and suddenly we feel tense and we get sharp with them because we don't realize that we've picked up on their tension. And since they are indeed already tense, then when we get reactive to them, they might get reactive back at us, and then we find ourselves in the middle of an argument over nothing. And someone needed to be able to sense and respond differently. And compassion helps us there. It helps us in countless situations of suffering, and countless situations in our lives in general, This the broader training. Compassion is a larger space where we can be sensitive, exquisitely sensitive, to what other beings experience without mistaking it for our own experience. Similarly, that larger space of compassion allows us to feel sensitive to what parts of us might experience without getting hooked on them and taking them as the whole of ourselves. Because maybe sometimes part of us might feel anxious about something And another part of us might feel excited. And we then might go into experiencing significant conflict and we stop enjoying anything. It's no fun anymore. 
And in some cases, we might see that energy as energy and not even assume it's anxiety, and that can be very helpful. In other cases, maybe we really do accept part of us feels anxious, another part feels positive or excited, and the two can be, we can acknowledge them both without identifying with either of them. We may experience a clear sense of depression or fear, but we don't have to get sucked into it and identify with it. We can rest in the larger space of compassion that allows everything, all things, to arise with increasing clarity, but without our getting so thrown off kilter or hooked by them. So we can become increasingly sensitive to whatever arises while becoming increasingly skillful in working with it. The way I sometimes put it is empathy is like flapping our wings and compassion is like flying. We can flap our wings a lot and not get very far. And on the other hand, flying relies on our capacity to flap our wings, but also requires more than that. And compassion means liberating ourselves into the spaciousness of the sky and knowing how to fly in it. There are levels of compassion, and we're not going into the levels. It's, it's pretty important to learn about them. I would say don't put that off. And you can find some introductory material on the levels of compassion on the Dangerous Wisdom site. Even at the basic level, we can begin to liberate ourselves into a larger ecology of mind, into a spaciousness in which we have clarity about what's happening, but we aren't controlled by it. We aren't forced to go with it. We don't get reactive we don't seek to manipulate. We just become more skillful. Now, we've contrasted then empathy and compassion, and we should also define empathic distress and contrast that with compassion. And this too matters for all of us because empathic distress or empathy distress is a serious challenge. We're all going to face it. If we have a friend or a life partner experiencing a lot of suffering, that can trigger empathy distress in us. The climate crisis can produce empathy distress in us. It can make it really hard to even face what's going on in the world if we're going to go into empathy distress over it. And so we'll start to get avoidant. And this matters for care workers in particular uh, I mean, it matters for all of us, but there's a difference. If if our job demands that we get exposed to significant suffering on a regular basis, then it can create burnout and other symptoms. And so the care workers includes people who are helping facilitate with medicines. It includes therapists, teachers, veterinarians. That's a big group who can suffer a lot of empathy distress. Parents can, nurses, doctors And again, anyone working with any of the medicines of our world, whether you are the person facilitating somebody's work with the medicine or you're the person who wants to work with those medicines, you can experience emotional contagion and empathy distress. That can happen. If you are, for instance, in an ayahuasca circle, you can certainly experience emotional contagion. And so we want to give a sense of how compassion differs from empathy in terms of the distress we can experience with empathy. But at this point, I think we've already done a lot of work together, and this is a good place to pause. And so we'll pick up with empathy distress in our next contemplation. We'll also discuss Tonglen. 
which is a powerful practice for our lives that can vitalize our work with any of the medicines of our world. Tonglen is really part of a holistic ecology of practice, but we will talk about it. Now, if you'd like to learn more about compassion, as I said, you can go to the Dangerous Wisdom Resources page. In our next contemplation, we'll also mention a few books that would be worthwhile if you wanted to start studying. If you have any questions, reflections, or stories to share about the medicines of our world and your experiences with them, including the medicine of compassion, if you have worked with compassion training, basic training, or Tonglen, then let us know about it. Send, send in your reflections, your stories, your thoughts through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.